This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering four conversations from Season 3, Episode 45, our review of the recent Paris Nash Conference, plus, from the vault, conversation from April 22, which looked at the need to improve testing criteria for drug development. These conversations are running a bit behind our usual schedule due to the challenges of travel and time change surrounding the NAFLD Summit that ended in Dublin on Saturday. We'll be back on our regular conversation drop schedule next week. And now, on to the discussions. This conversation starts with me commending the other talks in session five, the session that Frank Ananias started. Roy Sabo presented a cogent, comprehensive discussion of the value of adaptive trial strategies, and the following two talks discussed organizing patient databases in ways that simplify trial recruitment and have the potential to reduce screen fail rates. In the last talk from Marcus Hompesh from Prociento, we discussed the pluses and minuses of educating patients on better self-care. Good news? It creates a larger ready-made patient pool and improves overall patient health. Less good news? It increases placebo rates in clinical trials because patients are better informed and provide better self-care, which requires drugs to perform better if they are to demonstrate statistical difference. I didn't call this bad news because we should expect better performance from drugs in a world where better informed patients manage themselves more aggressively and appropriately. And from there, the group goes on to discuss the rest of the day one program. Every year, Paris Nash provides some of the strongest scientific content found in any program, coupled with an innovative look at fatty liver disease in the context of world health. This conversation touches on what emerged as some of the high points of a fascinating and important meeting. So, sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. We've talked about Frank Anania's talk, but we didn't talk about the rest of session five, which I thought was fantastic. Because what session five took a look at was organizing to think creatively about better ways to do the important things we have to do in clinical trials. Roy Sabos, I've always understood at a 30,000 foot level what that adaptive as a concept was a good idea, but I didn't really understand uh, what they were talking about until Roy Sabo walked us through all that. And I thought that that was amazing and very, very clear. I mean, Stephen had talked about a month ago about uh, taking fiber scan reads midpoint and using that to reset an, an entry criterion. But this is a whole different level. And I think that the wizardry of, I'm, I'm a big fan of Bayesian statistics, the wizardry of Bayesian statistics strikes again. But so I thought that was excellent. The talk after that was the fellow from Mexico about how we're organizing things in Mexico that I thought was really fantastic, Jeff, and in terms of organizing around trial populations and how to get people more um, coherent to do that. And then the last talk was Marcus Monspec, I think is his name, from Prociento. I've been looking at Prociento for two years, ever since they started raising money, as a really interesting model of how to attack clinical trial more systematically. Louise and I were texting during his talk trying to figure out exactly how far they're bringing the screen fail rate down, but it's a big number. And they're doing that by taking, I think, a much more holistic approach to what they're doing. You're on the kind of thing you've been advocating for in recent episodes, and you and Nail and IT and all that are kind of pushing towards as well. But I became imbued with hope that we can start doing trials much smarter, even than we envision today as we look ahead. Jaren Schattenberg. Session five was good. Um, as a clinician, you're always a little bit intimidated by a statistician who gives you a lot of formulas and you were really trying to wrap your head around it. A lot of people felt a little bit overwhelmed by the formulas he presented. I forgot you're a statistician yourself, Roger, so you felt very comfortable with formulas, but I could follow him, at least his words, and for sure the adaptation and being able to shorten or change the trial or enrich its power is clearly something we have to do in, in such a disease where we don't have an approved therapy and then submitting people to potentially ineffective or highly effective treatments to shorten treatment 
consideration. But coming to uh, Markus Hompesch, and it's a German name, so I would call it Hompesch. Thank you. For those who don't know, Jorn teaches me European names from time to time, but I completely foul up. So this is the first time I believe we've ever done this in public. <laughs> Sorry for that, Roger. <laughs> no, 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 don't be. Please, I need to learn. It's and Markus, um, we had an exchange in German, so I'm pretty confident that's all. You know, the question I had is, and I asked him that, is of course, it's it's good to enroll the patients, but it changes things for the good. I mean, um, patients are going to reflect about their condition. Potentially, those programs also provide something, access to either healthcare or educational materials. So there is going to be, maybe we're gonna, even going to be able to shape up some of the placebo effects that are normally then just start at the beginning of a clinical trial. And as such, I believe that these type of programs that enrich patients, keep them at bay to be enrolled once the right trial comes along is a good way also to decrease placebo effects. Yeah, I think these are all enrichment strategies. And Bayesian priors as kind of not cutting edge, but certainly state-of-the-art statistics go. Bayesian priors are a place to look for enrichment strategies without going into any details beyond that for now. Jeff, you wanted to say something. Jeff McIntyre. Yeah, I mean, it, it points again more towards patient involvement. And I feel like I'm, I'm becoming a little bit of the, the, the annoying parrot on the shoulder that only has the one phrase that he comes back with all the time. But it seems to me that this points to this. I, I fear that in many of our how do we improve clinical trials conversations, you know, we talk about screen failure rates and other aspects of it. So often there is technological response of some sort that if we can do this, if we can integrate AI, if we can integrate a different aspect of technology, that it will help incorporate that. And I think that I rank technology probably down at about seven or eight, actually, of what I would consider priorities in terms of being able to recruit better and to get better results in clinical trials as well. There are huge inequities in the system. There are biases in how things are chosen. There's just a a ton of other places that we can probably do that. And I think with patient input earlier on, it's going to help with that. I mean, even in the area of, frankly, something that wasn't discussed at Paris Nash, but informed consent, you know, that plays with the notion of education to begin with. But there's a lot of work to do that will happen outside of the labs to be able to include to improve clinical trials. If I'm being defensive, forgive me. I don't disagree with anything you just said. I think there's a question of getting the right population in where we are woefully deficient right now. And then there's a question of taking the population that's in and enriching it to the best end in terms of results. And in terms of enrichment, I think statistics has a lot to offer. In terms of getting the right patients in, I completely agree with you. And if you start with a population that's too narrow and you enrich it, which is the easiest thing to do, we're still going to wind up looking people in the eye in 15 years and saying, well, we haven't done any work with your particular ethnic group of trusted. That's unqualifiedly bad. On the other hand, getting in populations that are appropriately diverse and then not understanding how to take advantage of the differences between them will produce trials that are inefficient as well. So you're right. If I had to pick one, I think I worry about the one that you're worrying about. Happily, I don't think we have to make that choice. I think we can get the different people to go down both paths and make the whole thing work better. Yeah, agreed. I mean, you know, not to be trite, but something's better than nothing. And if we're not maximizing those that are coming into the trials now, then we're not going to have a foundation when we try to expand as well. We have a little bit of time left. I thought maybe we would just take the program and go session through session and see if anybody had anything they wanted to comment on that we've not touched on yet. Let's start in session one, right? Which where certainly Louise has talked significantly and actually we've talked about all that a little bit, haven't we? Is there anything anybody would like to add on the uh, any of the uh, discussion around session one? Something that stuck with me was that colleague uh, Sanat from Friends uh, motivated us to look at outcome trials and look at different indications. And I think this is uh, something that the field needs to be uh, discussing. Okay, session two. Actually, we haven't said anything about Chris's paper, have we? We haven't, but I would like to start with Cyril Cossey. She highlighted different types of insulin resistance or type 2 diabetes.
diabetes in patients with NAFLD. And painting just two subclasses, ones with severe insulin resistance that over time develop NAFLD and those with insulin and those with NAFLD that have some insulin resistance in type 2 diabetes, but maybe not the worst one. And I thought for a very pragmatic and simple way to look at them, one or the other. And I thought that the treatment of these two types of diabetes are going to be very different. And actually, that was one of the questions that came from the audience too. I think we're not equally paying attention to the length of the diabetes or the quality of the control. And I think we're seeing subgroups here. Spoiler alert, Jorn, which is that if she's in Dublin, I intend to beeline her and ask her to come do an episode on that because I thought Louise and I both agreed as we were listening how fascinating it was. And if we can get her into the diabetes series also, that would be fantastic for the same reason. I agree. I thought that was remarkably good and clear data. In the endocrinology literature, there's some more subtype. A Lancet endocrinology paper described five subtypes with different organ manifestations. So I think there's more complexity to that. She did it very pragmatic. Maybe it'll be great to have her in an episode and, and detail it. Louise Campbell. But I did enjoy Chris Cowdery's session. That was the first one. His point was, was when we do randomized controlled trials, we get in a population that doesn't reflect the real world trials, which one's heterogeneous and one's homogeneous and all of the problems that go on that sort of problem. Therein lies part of the issue of where we stand currently. We can have a perfect drug for a perfect heterogeneous patient in a trial that doesn't work in the real world. And I think, let's see. So he was talking about multiple different markers and how you do that. And I thought that was interesting. I thought Chris is a great choice for that paper. You know, he's been doing stuff for a long, long time and he's not solely about fatty liver. He looks more broadly at liver disease. And I think the more broadly you look, the more you can appreciate the shortfalls that you run into by focusing too narrowly. And I thought he did a great job of summing that stuff up. Louise, I think you were the one who had pointed up before we got started the HIV paper. I don't know. Was that when you stepped out or were you? Or, or did no, you I, I, I caught I caught some of that, but not enough to really be able to comment more than there was a general feel that a lot of people are now with the HIV and Jean is far more qualified to do this with his studies is that now they gain weight the same as anybody else. And there was one argument that most of their NAFLD was related to their weight gain and the normal parts of life they now have. That was the only bit that I was able to catch from that session. Do you have any reaction to it? Obviously, as Louise pointed out, and we've all discussed, you do a bunch of work in this area. They linked some risk factors that are present, medications, viral aspects, CD4 count uh, to these manifestations. Something that's always very striking to me is that in general, this population is a little bit younger, but the metabolic burden is the same. I think one of the reasons why they're so studied intensively is because they tend to show up in clinic regularly, and it's particularly uh, easy to enroll them in such a preventive strategy to inform them about their health and, and to do it more globally because it's a population of chronically diseased or chronically infected humans. As such, um, we spend a lot of time with them and counseling them. Metabolic liver health is just one aspect of that too. Moving onward as this clock moves on as well, Scott Friedman session. I just thought fantastic, but go ahead. A very special session. He always complains that he hasn't had that talk when he starts it. It feels like, you know, he's been thinking about that for some long time and the diversity of the methods and the papers he presented was just great. It's stimulating and he highlighted some of the technologies that we also discussed in this podcast, single cell sequencing. Beautifully said that this was uh, the most powerful technology advancement he's seen recently and I think we're going to see many more great uh, discoveries from that. He's been clear about that. He's been clear about his thing. So in my old career, every once in a while I got asked to give a paper about something I didn't know anything about and not so different. I think what you realize, A, is that everything you know ties into everything you need to study more than you would have realized when you get started and it winds up shaping the perspective that you bring to the talk. I, I think, as I said, I could watch him read a phone book because I'm sure he would manage to bring all his experience to it, but this was an example of that. Jeff, you look like you want to say something. Do I have you wrong? Dr. Friedman's, you know, session was interesting. As you've marked earlier, I'm in this new position now and 
am learning much more about HCC as I now oversee, see if I'm throwing how many litters and throw at you, GLI's liver cancer program. And it's, it's interesting to make the connections there to see where the outcomes are, but also see where there are some dissimilarities as well. Just a, a good basic overview, you know, for me of that. So, so stepping into this role, was there any particular point he made that struck you or was it just kind of in general, it was quite um, impressive and developed? Yeah, that it's just, it's, it's impressive and that there's still quite a long way to go with it. FNIH, I'll let somebody else comment on that first. I learned a lot. I guess I had expected it might go a little deeper than it went, a little more about here's what we're doing and a little bit less about here's what we're learning. But maybe it's premature for that. And I was encouraged by the programs. I would agree with that, Roger. It's an open secret that, you know, the Liver Forum did its meeting the day before Paris Nash and where we got a preview of a lot of these topics as well. And I'll mention, I think I can mention, I'll find out, I guess, that, you know, Frank Anania was a part of those discussions as well. And I feel like that, as we said earlier, really kind of steered a lot of the talk and a lot of the reaction we had to this. And so it was nice to see this, the FNIH presentations occur kind of outside of that perspective, kind of being a part of it. And now back to Roger. We hope you enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We will be back next week to discuss some recent exciting drug trial results and what they pretend for the next couple of years in drug development. In the meantime, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.